sind ja beide so voll entspannt. Also ich bin entspannt, du bist entspannt. Und, ja. was? was? Was ist da? Also wo, wo guckst du gerade hin? Was meinst du? Ich, ich guck dich an. Welcome to In Her Lens In Conversation. My name is Nadine, and this is the first episode of a special right here on In Her Lens. This podcast is built to center, celebrate, and share the work of underrepresented voices in the film and television sphere. And my hope is, through these In Conversation specials, to widen the lens and get to know more creators. In Her Lens In Conversation, Home Freund. I am honestly so honored to share this series with you. We'll delve into the story and the people behind the German short film that is making absolute waves internationally. In the next two episodes, I talk with director Maisa Lihedheb. Maisa is a film director born in Germany, daughter to Tunisian immigrants. She studied media and entertainment management, and she is the founder of BIPOC Film Society. It's a dynamic platform based in Berlin, which aims to promote intersectionality and representation within the industry. Maisa has directed music videos and short films. She's led curations and panel discussions. She's currently working on a variety of projects, including a feature-length documentary. Now, if all of this wasn't impressive enough, Maisa will be a fellow at one of the most prestigious film schools in the fall this year, NYU. With a less than 5% acceptance rate, Maisa is now a part of a small, very distinguished group. In this part one of our chat, she shares about her childhood and her draw to psychological thrillers and horror. We talk about her thesis, titled Symbolic Annihilation in Mass Media and Its Effects on the Identity of First-Generation Immigrants. Maisa breaks down how she met fellow producers Silish Naidu and Lamin Leroy Jibba, and how Hundefreund took off during the COVID lockdown. We talk about her influences, uh, pre-production like the story behind the wallpaper, and the creative team's focus on assembling a crew that highlighted filmmakers of color in Germany, plainly and brilliantly setting an example to Germany and the excuses around the lack of representation in front of and behind the camera. Here it is, part one of my conversation with Home the Point's director, Maisa Lihedheb. Well, welcome to In Her Lens. I'm so excited that we're going to have this conversation. For the listeners, will you introduce yourself to us? Tell us your pronouns, the last thing that you watched, and the last thing that you listened to. Okay. Um, so my name is Maisa Lihetab. My pronoun is she, her. Um, the last thing I listened to was, um, it's kind of embarrassing, but it's Max Richter's Vivaldi composition of the first movements. <laughs> Not right now. Um, and the last thing I watched, um, oh yeah, I'm the last. So like it was an episode of um, the Andy Warhol documentary was last ah, night. Okay. And are you enjoying it thus far? 
Yeah, really, I mean, yeah, it seems very meditative um, to get like also this glimpse in his life. And it's it's basically like um, readings of his diary um, with like some really nice music. And then they have like um, video footage from him in his in his young days or in his days when he was alive. And it's it's produced by one of my favorite um, showrunners or TV producers and directors, Ryan Murphy. So yeah, I was really excited to watch it. And I, I kind of love biopics and just seeing people succeed and starting from nothing and then becoming like the super successful person. But also, obviously, I have to yeah mention that like he's like very problematic. I mean, he's a misogynist um, and there's a lot of rumors of his. I mean, I didn't know that till yesterday, till someone told me. So I'm pretty yeah. aware of that. But, yeah. yeah, it's interesting to see how they will um, uh, uh, discuss and... Um explore those those subjects in something yeah. like a biopic right yeah. um but tell us a little bit about your background tell us a little bit about your education in film and your education in general where you live at the moment and what you spend your days doing mm -hmm. um yeah so i come from a small town called mal um, it's in west germany um and um early on i started working for like a our local TV station um, when I was like around 10 or 11 because they had these like um, holiday programs where we would like um, recreate music videos and so we started I started first like just like playing in it and then we started organizing it ourselves and then when I got older I was allowed to like produce kind of my own shows and I would like um, yeah do, yeah exactly like having like a like few little shows in the city and talking about love or whatever topic there was. It was like kind of like a weekly, um, how do you call it? A weekly show mm -hmm. about some topic. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I was always like really interested in film. Um, it was like some kind of escapism for me because um, my home was not like maybe the most peaceful one. Mm -hmm. So I was just like early on, watching a lot of movies and TV and reading a lot of books um, to escape my reality um, and also start writing my own short stories when I was young, like around seven, eight, I wrote a horror story when my mom thought I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess like it was, it was, it felt better to write horror than kind of living through it at that mm -hmm. time. That's how I felt about it. Um, yeah, so I always knew I wanted to do something in film or something. I wanted to be connected to this outside world. And um, so I wanted to be an actress first. And then later on, I was like, no, I want to tell stories. I want to make film. And I didn't have the chance to go to film school at that age uh, because it was kind of like a unrealistic dream for me. So, I mean, I always knew I wanted to do film, but I also knew I don't have the access to it. Um, and my parents won't be able to like help me financially. So I thought, okay, I'm going to study something that's more stable. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, and I, so I went to Holland and studied media and entertainment management, which is the opposite of stable. I mean, <laughs> I didn't find any job with that degree. And, um, and it also cost a lot of money. So I might as well just stay in Germany. But anyways, I just learned a lot about the industry in general, just the media industry. And yeah, and then I came to Berlin and I, yeah, as I said, I didn't really find a job in this field, but at the same time, I didn't want to find a job in the marketing or media world. Like I knew I, I just wanted to, 
tell stories, fictional stories or documentary. I just wanted to be a filmmaker and a writer. So I spent most of, um, so the most things that I did um, after that was like doing freelance stuff, like shooting music videos or yeah, things that I just did to like earn some money, but yeah, yeah. just waiting for the time to actually get my own, like get the means to do my own films. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started shooting my first um, short film when I was 16. That was like at school. Um, we had to do like some kind of Abschlussarbeit, um, like um, like an exam for um, my degree. Like, And it was like, do you know what the Abitur is? Yeah, yeah. Like the baccalaureate, yeah, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Baccalaureate. So I had to do an exam for my baccalaureate, and my baccalaureate was in media. Mm-hmm. So I, d- I did my baccalaureate in media, and so I did this short film, which was like a horror film um, that I shot with my little sister and her friend and my dad. Mm-hmm. And then my second one was at university in Holland, where um, I was the first one at the school that like kind of created like a film collective in mm-hmm. some way, where we where I got people together were passionate about film and um, I asked them if they wanted to write something, if we should write something together. And like so surprisingly, so many people were down to just shoot something, even though we yeah. didn't have any money or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I shot my second short film, which was um, a psychothriller. Um, yeah. And since then I haven't really shot horror or psychothriller anymore, but I, I would like to do that again in the future. <laughs> yeah, by this. Um, you also wrote a really interesting thesis, which I had the chance to read. Thank you for sending it to me. Um, will you talk a little bit about why you wrote it, what it's about and how it informs your work today? Yeah, um, so I came up with the topic um, when I read um, um, when I read this book, The Good Immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a English book, um, a British book, and it's it's like a, a book of full of essays from different people of color in England, um, which are all artists or filmmakers or actors or whatever. And everyone was like t- talking about like their experience as being brown or black in um, England. And that's the first time I ever actually thought about myself being a brown woman um, in Germany. I've never thought about it before. I mean, I never really had words for it or like did, like I didn't know there was like word for it I just knew things were different for me and I knew that I, I'm not white um and I knew that there was like a lot of like injustice injustices happening but I didn't know how like this is actually like structural and like so many things that I like happened to me are based on my skin color mm-hmm. um I also never thought about the film industry as exclusive and at that point, like I always knew there were no there were no idols for me or there were no like there was no representation for me on the media. But I also kind of felt like it was normal. So I like didn't even. Yeah. So it wasn't like like I knew it was a problem, but I didn't have the words for it. So when I read the book, I was like, oh, my God, like this is actually such an important topic. And I wonder why no one in Germany is talking about it. And no one in Germany was talking about like the topic diversity wasn't even a thing. And it just started to become a thing in America with like the Oscars so wide. It was just mm-hmm. that time. Um, and so, yeah. And then I proposed to my professor to write my thesis about um, the lack of representation and what it does to the psyche. Um, and I used Master of None as an example because it was the first show that I've ever watched um, that was in the mainstream that was about a Muslim immig- like first generation immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I chose this topic and chose to uh, write about it and do my research about it in Germany. 
which was really difficult because there was no data um, available at all in Germany. The, again, as I said, it wasn't a topic, so you couldn't even find newspaper articles about lack of diversity, diversity in general, or racism, or stereotypes in, in film and TV in Germany. So that's why I based most of my research in England and um, in the States, because they did a lot of research about that and just applied it to here. And also try to have like my own focus group and see um, the people in my surroundings, how they feel about it. And even, they, and like also them, they, they, it wasn't like a topic in the head, but we didn't talk about it for mm -hmm. some reason mm -hmm. because it just seemed like it seemed normal. And that's what I found it find find so scary in a sense, how we just normalized being excluded in this world mm -hmm. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And what are some of the findings specifically also about things like anxiety and depression and how things like lack of representation and uh, lack of also uh, not even just representation on screen, but also the people who are creating the work. How is that? Because you talk about this in your thesis. How is that really affecting people? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's like I like my findings in a focus group was that a lot of my subjects were struggling with depression when they grew up um, and anxiety based on the feeling that they never felt seen. And also because they didn't fit to the beauty standards that were represented to us. Mm -hmm. um, we we saw beautiful white blonde woman like, I don't know, Hannah Montana or Zoe 101 or all these like high school musical characters that you look at like it's part it's part of your life in your teenage in your teenage years and you and as a teenager you you want to connect you want to identify with something yeah. and so we didn't have to like we identified with these characters in some way but we we weren't anything like them we didn't look like them we didn't have that life so you start wondering um so you start thinking that something is wrong with you as a teenager Mm -hmm. You try to straighten your hair, even though you have curls and it looks even worse after. And like, um, you're not this thin, tall woman. So you feel like you don't, you're not attractive or you're not seen as attractive. Um, you, in some way you even start, I mean, I remember I started making up an identity. I told everyone I was Mexican because I was so ashamed to say I'm Arab because Arab representation in media was really bad at that time and still is. Mm -hmm. And the only people that I could relate to were Latinos, Latinas in, in the media, like Eva Longoria or something. So I was like, oh my God, if I say I'm Mexican and people will like me because they have someone they can identify my existence with. Right. Um, and that's what I found out a lot is like you, as a viewer, you start, um, the characters that you see on TV, you start comparing them to your own friends in some way, especially if you watch a show over and over, these characters become familiar to you and you kind of look for these um, characteristics in your surroundings. For instance, if you see an Arab or like a black or brown man and you don't really include them in your in-group because you 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 don't see them really as like first of all as more dimensional you see them as one dimensional you see them as a character that is only an antagonist or like kind of like demonized so these people in your real life become demonized too right especially right. if you are not surrounded by people of color in your day-to-day -day life so if you are a viewer who's white and who's watching conf like tv heavily what you see on TV as you assume is the reality and therefore you assume that people you see there are equally bad as the people that are around you. 
I find this really interesting just in general about human nature. And I tell people, or I speak with people about this all the time as well, that there's two sides of it that we subconsciously are matching what we have been taught. It's like an algorithm. It's like data intake, right? It's like what you take in is what you then expose. And um, the other side of it is also what we see on screen because we've been taught what's on screen is important. Even if it's like your phone screen or an ad or whatever, it's like, oh, that is on there. So it is more important than I am because I am not on there. And that kind of value relation is the thing that is so... um, so that is what is commodified today, right? That's what it's being sold. That's where the money is. But that's also where our detriment is. Exactly. And like, I mean, research also has shown that a lot of people see fictional content. They take it as serious as they take in news. Right. So like that, like they unconsciously, you think it's a reality. Yeah. Like yeah. even if you like, but you, yeah. And it's like, that's extremely dangerous. And it, And the same thing with like, as a person of color, if you see yourself being re- like repetitively stereotyped and seeing yourself as, um, for instance, as like a drug dealer and like the only person you can relate to on TV that looks like you as a drug dealer, you at some point, and especially if you're a teenager, you think that this, this is what is expected of you. Mm-hmm. So you become this stereotype. Because it's because you need to identify with something, and that's what research has shown with like black and Latino people in in the, in America. So that's what I find so um, dangerous in some way. It's like one hundred percent. After you wrote this thesis, you came to Berlin and you started the BIPOC Film Society. Will you tell us a little bit about it and um, mm-hmm. uh, how it started and what you run? Because it's really really awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I actually started um, with a film series um, screening um, what was, that was called Classic Minority Presents, um, mm-hmm. where like my my dear friend, she recommended me to some bar owner who had like a free room in the background where you could screen films. She was like, hey, I have this friend. She's obsessed with films. Maybe she can show films there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did. And so I started like showing films from um, from underrepresented people um, and like had some Q and A's or organized some Q and A's. And then later I realized that it's kind of hard to do all of that by myself. Um, and it was also around the same time where I was rejected from film school three times, I think in that year. And I was like, okay, we have to start a collective or something. Like there needs to be a room or space um, where I can connect with other filmmakers. And there is a, there's a lot of collectives already in Germany. so like it already exists but I think I needed like to find just like my people and my group and yeah and that's how BIPOC Film Society came into fruition and um, and in the beginning we thought we didn't really know what we're gonna do like we just thought okay this is a collective where we just all like you know gonna connect on that and we're gonna write movies um, film reviews and we're gonna have film screenings that was all in the beginning Um, and then later on um, we thought okay it would be nice to kind of start doing our own things. Um, and it just randomly happened. Like someone just asked us, hey, um, I don't know what you guys do, but like, do you want to do a music video for me? And we we're like, yeah, sure, why not? Like we didn't even mark, market ourselves as like production company or anything, but um, somehow there was a buzz already. Um, and yeah, so we did, a, started with a music video and then we did a few other short films and and then the final was on the front. 
Yeah, which is why we're here. It's a great transition moment. Um, uh, there is another episode in this series where I talk with Lamin and Silish about also with about you and how you three met. Uh, but from your side, how did you? Uh, who was the first person that you met? How did those relationships grow? And how early on? Because I know it was really early on. Were you involved in this process already? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I met Silish. I think four years ago, yeah, at a party, and we connected. Um, because of astrology like, <laughs> we were, I was just talking about astrology and like and then Silas was like oh my god like wow let's talk about it and then we just talked about astrology and then we just became friends and Silas was always like such a, an important drive in my life because they were always so they always saw something in me that I didn't see myself like they would they would always say oh my god you're so talented and like like you're gonna be big and da 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 and I was like yeah I don't know but like thank you for believing in me and like they always pushed me to like do things that I wouldn't do or wouldn't see yeah and then remember we went to like a panel talk um at um a film school and Lamine was there mm-hmm. and then Sage was like oh I know this person like I feel like I'm gonna work with this person someday and I was like oh funny he and then yeah one year two years later um Silish tells me about this idea that they want to make and I was like okay great um let's do it but again in that moment I didn't even feel it was real because Berlin people in Berlin people always say oh you have this great idea let's do it and you just say yeah but it never yeah, happens let's do it and nothing happens and New York is like that a lot too <laughs> yeah and so so it's just like mm, yeah sure yeah yeah let's do it mm-hmm. and then um Silish reached out to Lamine and um and Lamine was like yeah let's do it and then all of a sudden it became a thing and we yeah. were actually doing it and it was an interesting process because the, the whole time I was just like okay we're coming up with idea, ideas now and and when the when the script was done I was like oh wow like I can't, actually can't believe what Lamin put together and like that this is actually we're actually going to do a film mm-hmm. and we didn't think of it as like a big film I mean we wanted it to be but we also knew we had no money and it's probably we're probably just going to get like I don't know, 2000 or something, or like have to put our own money in and just ask people to work for free. But from the beginning on, we knew we didn't want people to work for free. Mm-hmm. And then when we got rejected from our first funding, which was 2000 euros, we were really sad. And then the project was also kind of like on ice for a bit. So I thought it's not going to happen. Um, but then, yeah, Silas had the, yeah, the brilliant idea to apply for the biggest funding <laughs> in Germany. And I was like, sure let's try again not <laughs> thinking we would get it because it's only for established filmmakers but that's why you know I appreciate the American attitude sometimes because they just yeah. go and get it and yeah. they got it <laughs> and yeah and then that's it that's how it happened and then we were just like okay now this has to be big and mm-hmm. and I'm happy we got this money so we could all prove what we actually can do if money was given to us right um, I hope our film proved that how many talented people we had on our crew how many talented people that are really unseen because they never get chance or the access mm-hmm. and I hope that after this film like many of us are finally seen and finally given the chance to prove themselves um or not to prove themselves but to kind of prove the world how talented we are and right, right. to yeah to get the money so this was created during COVID for the majority um during um what how did that influence the process do you think and the relationship between the three of you from idea to script to set Mm -hmm. I think it was kind of a blessing um, that COVID was happening because um, we all of us didn't have much 
to do anyways. Um, there was nothing going on. There was no distraction. So I think I'm kind of happy. No, I mean, it might be problematic, but I, I'm glad we used the pandemic well. Um, and I think if the pandemic didn't happen, we might have not had the time to actually sit on the project and do it, um, especially because everyone is quite busy. But at the same time, I think we would have done it either way. I just think it wouldn't have been as fast. I think if the pandemic wasn't a thing, I think it would have taken a bit longer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was nice. Uh, like, I think it got us really close together because we were the only, it was the time where you also had to social distance. So the only people I was seeing that time was Silish and Lamine. And I think for them, it was the same. So it was, yeah, that's how we actually all became closer and like good friends and got to know each other. Yeah. Which is always so special to have these kind of really fundamental pillars in place when you're working mm -hmm. on something. Um, exactly. What were your, you directed this film, <laughs> for, uh, for just for clarity's sake, what were your early influences? What were things that you were looking at? What were images that you were referring to or stories that you were thinking of whilst this was growing and molding into an actual project and an actual shoot date? Mm -hmm. um, so I was actually at the beginning because, so the film is like only place in basically one house or one apartment and mostly in one room. So I was thinking about movies that were shot in one room and um, I was Googling a bit of seeing like what was done before and how did they create such a dynamic image. Um, and I knew that like in order to have a dynamic image or like a dynamic movie um, where people don't get bored because you're in between walls and most things you will look at is not only the actors, but like the environment and you, you look at details. Um, so I knew the room had to be exciting. So I knew that like had to be a lot of like things just like in the background, like, I don't know, a lamp and like a few flowers, books, magazines, because the eye will wander at some point. And I knew that the walls cannot be white. Um, and it was shot at my apartment. It was a great chance to finally redecorate my apartment too. So. <laughs> Um, and so I was thinking to use wallpaper and <laughs> Silas was a bit against it as a typical producer um, <laughs> because um, it was, we thought it would be expensive, but thankfully it wasn't. Um, and I had a green bed already. And so I was like, okay, a green bed works well with a red wall. And that's when I started thinking about, oh, wait, in the mood for love, because mood for love was mainly right. green and red. And it was also shot mostly in an apartment. So that's then where I took most of my inspiration from. Um, same with the DOP and um, our set designer, Joan. Um, that was kind of like, in the end, I think a very obvious reference was uh, In the Mood for Love. Um, not only like visually, but also story-wise, because Malik was in the mood for love. <laughs> it just didn't happen. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I was one of my biggest inspiration and the film I was thinking of the most. But I, th I mean, we also had um, Rainer Werner Fassbender's uh, Bitter Tears from Kant. Yeah, that was also an inspiration because it was also mainly in a room and yeah, it was yeah. just going completely nuts. Mm -hmm. um, but before, before all of that and before even deciding to shoot in my apartment, I had the idea to shoot it in a theater like in, on a theater stage mm. because I thought it would be quite dynamic to move 
the stage around since it's just going to be one room and kind of like um, this film that Lars von Trier did where everything was just on a stage. Yeah. And I thought it would be it would be interesting and metaphorical in some way because it feels like um, our whole life is kind of a play. Yeah. And most of the people we meet and the people we date are kind of actors trying to um, be something that they're not. And especially if they like white radical leftists or leftists in general, they try to prove that they're not in some way racist still. Um, yeah, so that's why I was thinking about the whole theater stage and how we could play with lights. And But that, yeah, that idea... Um, vanish also again because of costs and also because um i think it's way more intimate and beautiful to do it in an apartment and i'm happy we did that in the apartment as well building the team i mean everyone i've spoken to in this series was of the utmost importance and also the thing that everybody reflects on and loved the most will you share a little bit as the director as the leader of this project on set especially what was the idea be behind what you wanted to build in team wise And how did you pursue what you wanted and made sure that that stayed at the forefront, despite the things that you walk into when you're trying to produce a short film? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, my goal always and was and always will be is to create an, a, like a super inclusive um, crew. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's also what BPOC Film Society stands for, to um, highlight filmmakers of color And that's what was so important for me for this project. If we have the money, let's get people on board that are marginalized. Um, and especially also people that are first timers or like haven't done anything before, but um, have been on set and had like some kind of experience and also mix it with people that are extremely um, experienced. And that's what I really love about, loved about the set dynamic is just like first timers and um, experienced people coming together. Um, and also why it was so important to have like a full BPOC cast uh, crew, I mean, is that everyone just instantly understands what is what the film was about. There were no, I mean, it didn't feel like anyone was like kind of like interrogating you. Why would you do that scene? Why would he say that in that moment? Like everyone from the beginning was just like clear and everyone everyone on set had the same experience as Malik had, or at least most of them had a similar experience, a similar failed, failed date in some way. Um, and it was like really important for us also in pre-production to sit um, in the living room and like just everyone tells a story about like what what they feel about the script and like in what way it's it relates to their life. I mean, it sounds stupid, but we became kind of like a family in some way. Or like more like a, f a beautiful friendship group. And I think that was the best set experience I've ever had in my life. Great testament to you and um, also Lamin and, and, and Silas. But as a director, that that's what you've built for other people and that mm -hmm. everyone that I've spoken with thus far, and you can feel it in the film too, but everyone was like, yeah, this really set the standard for me and how I want to be treated and how I would want to in the future um, enter sets and the sets that I want to see and be a part of, which is exciting and important part. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly also what we want to showcase. Like, we just want to, like, this is, that this film is now, like, getting the recognition it deserves is all I wanted because I wanted to show, especially, like, these gatekeepers and all these, like, industries in Germany or in Europe that, like, how talented 
BIPOC filmmakers are and how many BIPOC filmmakers of like a crew members are like exist because most of the time you always hear when you ask them like why did you only have white male um only a white male crew most of the time they answer is like oh we couldn't find any or there there aren't any DOPs of color and I'm just like yes there are and we found them and how is it that we found them and you you couldn't even like you literally have all the money in the world and you can't right. even put some effort in and like you know um highlighting these talents or like hiring these talents so I just wanted to prove that like whatever they're saying is like a, a lame excuse basically don't stay away for too long later this week part two of my conversation with the incomparable Misa drops right here I hope you've enjoyed the chat so far and thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow Maisa on Instagram at Classic Minority Presents and the film at homlefreund.film. You can also follow the podcast at In Her Lens Podcast. Maisa is fundraising for her attendance in the fall at NYU and I cannot stress enough how vital it is that we get women like her with her talent and vision and voice into the industry on every level and how incredible this opportunity is. If this conversation has been anything short of inspiring and educative, I would like to ask you to please visit her GoFundMe. I've linked it in the episode notes and to donate. Back in a couple of days with part two and back next Wednesday with Hondefoint's creator, Silish, and the writer and star of the film, Lamin. Grateful you were here. See you very soon. Cheers, bye.